All right, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Barnard is obviously very special to me um, and to Lauren and Irene. Um, and it was special to Barbara Seaman, too. And tonight, in part, we're very much here to honor Barbara and her legacy. Um, I want to start by saying a few words about Barbara. Uh, in February of 2008, which amazingly is almost four years ago now, uh, the women's health movement lost one of its mothers, and I lost one of mine. Barbara Seaman was a tireless activist on behalf of women's rights. Um, she died of lung cancer at her home in Manhattan um, four years ago. After her diagnosis, uh, she was determined to write her memoirs and to put her various experiences working for reform in women's health care and to offer advice and tales of victory, tales of caution, to put this all to paper for young women and activists coming in the next generation. Um, and sadly, she never got the chance to do so. Uh, during the summer of 2007, I conducted a series of interviews with Barbara, asking her to talk about different points in her great career. She never could decide which was the experience that first put her on the path to a life in health advocacy. Was it the death of her Aunt Sally from uh, hormone treatment-related cancer, or the time a doctor ignored her stated intentions to breastfeed and gave her a postpartum drug that leached into her breast milk and nearly poisoned her infant son? I like to think that, at least subconsciously, it was the moment when Barbara, at 17, went to her doctor, and in response to her queries about how to lose weight, he gave her a free pack of cigarettes and told her to take one, have smoke one after dinner instead of having dessert to lose weight. Um, she was similarly undecided when she was asked about her greatest accomplishments. Um, you know, was it her book, Women in the Crisis and Sex Hormones, uh, her, her 1969 book, The Doctor's Case Against the Pill, the, which led to hearings and eventually the world's first, uh, or the, one of the first patient, the first patient packet insert. Um, in the end, I guess she decided it was a tie between her grandchildren um, and uh, the creation of the National Women's Health Network, uh, which continues today to fight very important battles for women's health. Um, Barbara's joy in her work was contextual, and it always came from seeing her personal accomplishments alongside the work of others. Talk about her groundbreaking book on birth control, and she would start to describe Alice Wolfson's uh, protests at the Nelson Pill hearings. Compliment her book, Women in the Crisis and Sex Hormones, and she would detail the courageous scientists who helped to underline the dangers of HT, um, or the work of a brave lawyer like Sybil Shanewald, who helped to get legal justice for DES victims. Barbara was never looking for individual attention, which is another reason that I think that this book actually constitutes a fitting biography of its author and serves as the memoir in many ways that she never had the chance to write. Um, Barbara, Barbara's private stories appear in this volume alongside the great writings of her heroic antecedents, her peers, and her intellectual and political daughters and granddaughters. The heart of it all, while often personal and anecdotal, is fundamentally communal, instructional, and political. There are so many battles facing, health battles facing young women today. In the United States, our crumbling health system has created a world where very few, regardless of sex or gender, can receive adequate health care. And drug companies have worked hard to see that those who do are full of dubious long-term drugs. Hysterectomies are still endemic, um, despite strong evidence that unnecessary gynecological surgery shortens the lifespan. The right to a safe abortion is, as ever, under assault. Uh, 
the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people continue to be abused and curtailed. The political challenges of childbirth and motherhood continue unresolved. As ever, young women, uh, and even as young women reap the benefits, the expanded educational and career opportunities earned in many ways by second-wave feminists, they struggle to navigate a society that treats women and men, mothers and fathers, differently and always asks women to make fantastically difficult choices and suffer in a vocational world that is sadly still rife with sexism. Teenage and preteen women must contemplate a society where drug makers insist that periods are unnecessary and the burden of STD prevention is still predominantly female. Uh, in this world, we must define and fight the new healthcare battles of the 21st century and carry forth the women's health movement. My hope and my belief is the example, memory, and inspiration of women who have come before us, including Barbara, will help us to keep fighting. In many ways, it seems significant to me that this book is coming out now. Um, it's a particularly tough moment for women's health, and I'm sure everyone has been following the various assaults on women's health services that have been ongoing um, in a particularly aggressive way for about a year now, um, starting actually almost exactly a year ago uh, when sort of a perfect storm uh, came together between uh, recent midterm elections and you had a crop of Republican politicians hoping to show off pro-life bona fides. There were uh, so, sort of so-called sting operations in Planned Parenthood clinics uh, by a group called Live Action that um, was manipulated to make it look as though employees were behaving inappropriately. Um, and uh, Mike Pence from Indiana, last right about a year ago today, um, introduced a measure that would have cut off funding to Planned Parenthood, but also, of course, the same bill that the Pence Amendment was in would have eliminated the entire Title X program. Title X is a necessary and chronically underfunded program to provide low-cost reproductive health services and suddenly has become a target both in the ongoing war over reproductive rights and a newly energized battle over government spending and federal debt, and it's kind of become a focus for uh, these different tensions. This, unfortunately, last year was only the beginning. Um, and the past year has seen so many of these things. We've seen the emergence of so-called personhood amendments that would criminalize birth control as well as abortion and create yet another way to institutionalize second-class citizenship for women. In the past month alone, we've seen the fight over Susan G. Komen's attempt to defund Planned Parenthood and cut ties, um, and also the, what will undoubtedly be an ongoing debate over the specifics of the new health care law as it relates to contraceptive coverage. And that battle uh, is far from over. Um, when I was writing my book, In Our Control, uh, I did a chapter on emergency contraception. And in researching this always hot topic, I realized with horror that there was an emerging consensus against many birth control methods in anti-abortion camps. And we first saw this change come together um, in the debate over emergency contraception going over the counter. Um, Without getting into the specifics of that many-year fight, during which political interests once again unduly influenced science at FDA, one of the major arguments to emerge was that EC constituted an abortifacient. Um, part of this was the willful conflation of emergency contraception with medication abortion. But much more of this argument was based on a, a new effort to redefine pregnancy and argue that um, the moment that a sperm meets the sperm meets egg, that is a pregnancy, which is inconsistent with scientific definitions that put pregnancy starting when a fertilized egg implants in the uterus. Um, 
so this, this new definition being used by many anti-abortion activists is inconsistent with those used by most medical organizations. Um, this didn't mean just that EC would be an abortifacient under that kind of a definition. It would mean the birth control pill. It would mean the IUD. It would mean any form of hormonal contraception. Taken to an extreme, it could mean just having sex during breastfeeding because, of course, that changes the uterine lining to make it inhospitable to implantation. The implications of such a change are so far-reaching. Um, and when I wrote in our control, I saw that this was starting to emerge, but I've been absolutely shocked by how quickly this has been happening. Um, and I think that one of the major reasons for it is um, a change within the conservative uh, Protestant community. Uh, the Catholic Church, of course, has historically been opposed to birth control, but that is not the case um, even in very conservative Protestant communities in a lot of cases, um, and that has been undergoing a change. Ten years ago, for example, uh, Focus on the Family value statement said that birth control within marriage was consistent with their beliefs, and today, obviously, this is changing dramatically, and the implications for American women are staggering. Um, so at this moment, I want to bring Barbara Seaman back into the conversation to say, I think the challenges for the women's health movement are that once again, here we are back defending access with everything we've got to give, and that's tough. Um, Barbara, of course, got her start as a young journalist writing for Ladies' Home Journal and Brides Magazine, and while she was there, she started getting letters from readers sharing stories that disturbed her about their experiences with birth control pills, um, which at that point were, was a very different drug. It had 10 times the hormone dose that modern pills today have. Um, she received enough of these letters that she realized that she needed to do something, and eventually this led to her writing a book, which uh, was the doctor's case against the pill, which eventually led to congressional hearings, um, which eventually led to patient packet inserts and generally uh, raised awareness about um, how to, how to use birth controls, birth control pills if you wanted to use them in a way that was healthier, to be aware if you were starting to have a problem. Um, so Barbara's, during the congressional hearings, I wanted to just mention, uh, there was another amazing piece of activism, which was sort of, uh, which led by a group called DC Women's Liberation, um, and one of the women within that group was a Barnard graduate, Alice Wolfson. Um, but there were many other women as well in that group, um, and they went to go to the hearings to gather information, not to stage activism. Once they got there, they started to get angry because they realized that women weren't being involved in those hearings. They realized that patients weren't speaking, Barbara Seaman wasn't speaking. It was all male doctors getting up and talking about their experiences or their information, and they started to get angry. And it was during that time, they, uh, the way that Alice Wilson describes it, she just got so angry, it couldn't be contained anymore, and the women started to stand up and shout out questions. They started to say, why is there no pill for men, and why are women being used as guinea pigs? And to, to sort of really interrogate that hearing process. These different but important, equally important pieces of activism, Barbara's book and the DC Women's, the DC Liberation, sorry, the DC Women's Liberation protest, uh, became essential and foundational pieces of the women's health movement. And eventually, uh, Barbara and Alice became two of the founders of the National Women's Health Network, and that was one thing that grew out of these pieces of activism. Being critical of the pill at that moment was complicated. The second wave women's movement was building steam, and the pill was a relatively new thing in American life. And there were many people, many feminists, who felt that raising awareness of its problems was a bad thing for women because it strengthened the voices of those arguing more broadly about contraception. And in light of our current challenges, I think we can understand that perspective, not just as it relates to contraception, but 
many drugs, many drugs that uh, are available for women's health, um, it can be a scary moment because because you feel like how can how can we look for safety when we're in this moment where access is in peril? Um, I don't have any easy answers here. I'm terrified about the current debate about the right to contraceptives, let alone the right to a safe and legal abortion. And yet I see so many dangers in simplifying our challenges. It's dangerous, I think, for example, when we assume that our enemies are all anti-abortion activists or religious conservatives, and we forget about powerful forces who do not have the best interests of women's health at heart, not the least of which, of course, are powerful pharmaceutical companies. Um, and when we get focused on reproductive health, above all else, we forget that women's health is so much more dynamic and complicated than that, and we have so many other challenges. Um, but again, I don't, I don't have an answer to this. I just think it's a, a conversation that we need to be in. When Barbara Seaman was writing about the birth control pill in the late 1960s, she was writing about a dangerous drug, as I said, one that had 10 times the hormone dose. Today, when I write about the pill, I have the privilege of writing sometimes critically, about a drug that is safe. Um, and this change didn't happen because Barbara and Alice kept their mouths shut or countless women were too afraid to share their stories. Uh, this change happened specifically because of a healthy, thriving feminist culture that was both privately and publicly in conversation about the dangers of various birth control methods and what could be done to make them better and put them back in the service of women and not the other way around. Let's never forget that freedom of access means not just access to material methods, but to real information and to real debate. Um, tonight, I am so thrilled to have such great women here who can address uh, these challenges from various perspectives. And I had originally imagined this panel to provide information on creating effective women's health activism from several different contexts. Helen Lowry could speak about her experiences as a student creating resources for women who were the victims of sexual violence on a campus that lacked services for this community. Lauren and Irene could describe starting a not-for-profit, New York Abortion Access Fund, which I'm very thrilled and proud to announce just happily celebrated its 10th anniversary. Um, and Dr. Leonor Tiefer could talk about her incredible activist organizing and creating a new view of women's sexual problems, a group that brought together women from many walks of life, uh, writers, professors, doctors, etc., to work together to prevent the medicalization of women's sexuality. Um, I realize, though, that Lauren and Irene can speak powerfully about the current challenges to abortion and contraceptive actus, and Dr. Tiefer uh, continues to be such a powerful advocate who can speak about the challenges of working on drug safety and the continuing medicalization of women's bodies. Um, so let's get to their voices. So Helen Lowry holds a bachelor's degree in psychology from Boston University and a JD from American University Washington College of Law. While an undergrad, Ms. Lowry co-founded the Coalition for Consensual Sex, a student organization created to improve sexual assault survivor services available to the campus community. Mrs. Low Ms. Lowry also worked as a legal advocate at a rape crisis center and is an attorney in the area of reproductive rights and women's health. Ms. Lowry is the mother of a beautiful baby girl um, <laughs> and is currently pursuing a master's degree in education. Thank you, Laura. Uh, I'm so excited to be here. I thought I'd uh, spend tonight talking to some of the younger women in the room because I often find myself in these circles and don't know how I got here, these incredible feminists and activists and just intelligent, thoughtful, smart, remarkable women. And 
it's, I always go to bed at night thinking, what happened? And um, basically my thought is that if it happened to me, it can happen to you as well. Um, I didn't know that I was a feminist. I would not have used the word. I believe what I said in my college essay was that I was going to be a humanist because I thought that men and women should be treated equally, so that didn't make me a feminist because, well, I didn't know what the word meant. And, well, they let me into school, but that's another story anyway. Uh, The summer of my junior year, I was looking for an internship and had learned a little more and decided at that point I wanted a feminist internship and stumbled upon uh, Barbara Seaman's Uh, name on a list of people willing to give internships. So I sent an email from London and said, will you take me? And I was fortunate enough that she took me on. She did not berate me for my naive opinions. Instead, she handed me a very large stack of books and said, I'll talk to you about these tomorrow. Uh, I did wind up reading the books and Over the course of that summer, working with Barbara and with Laura, I learned about, uh, I basically learned that when, when when women want to do something, if something is important to them, then they can make it happen. And it's not, there's this incredible power that you get when you get one or two women into a room. Um, And the advances that women have that we see today are really made because people put their mind to it. Somebody thought it was important to them and they made it happen. So on my campus community, uh, on my campus community, uh, we found out the hard way that there really weren't any services for young women who had had an experience, well, for people in general that had had an experience with sexual violence. Um, the campus had an unwritten policy that they were going to sweep under the rug the rates of instances and um, there were I found there was one crisis counselor for the entire campus community there was uh, there was sort of a, a judicial system, internal judicial system that would hear cases, but it clearly wasn't working. Uh, people were being assaulted by uh, people that they knew living in their dorm rooms. They were told that people would be transferred and the offending person was moved to a different floor rather than a different building. Um, People were not receiving support when they needed to have a little extra time to do their schoolwork. There just really wasn't anything in place. Um, strangely enough, across the river, uh, there was this wonderful rape crisis center, but the school, for various assorted liability reasons or what have you, decided that they were not going to announce that it was over there and that there were services there for people to have. Uh, so. Basically, a group of three fairly unorganized, inexperienced uh, young women at the university decided that we were going to change that. We set a giant vision. We said, we're seniors, and by the end of the year, there's going to be a rape crisis center on this campus. Um, it seemed it seemed like an attainable goal at the time. I'm, uh, I was coming off this wonderful summer, and... Uh, I really did think it could happen. Uh, I was very surprised to find that there was a whole lot of red tape 
I thought, of course, well, this seems like a wonderful thing. This isn't at all controversial. Of course, everyone would want to help somebody if they were the, if they were involved in a sexual assault. And that just wasn't the case. Uh, people wanted to know, why should we spend money on this? People wanted to know, it really isn't happening. You can look at the statistics, which are underreported. Um, they said it would be a liability. That was the biggest one. It's a liability. It's a liability for us to have these services. And um, there really, there was a lot of red tape. Um, so we regrouped and thought apparently going directly to the administration was not going to work. Uh, went to the Rape Crisis Center and started working with them um, backtracked a little and found out what services they had, um, what services they found people were using, what they even had information on the way that, um, on the statistics of people at our campus using their services. Uh, and armed with that information, we were able to go back to the administration and say, look, maybe we don't know what we're talking about, but here's a professional organization, and this professional organization says that this many of our students are using these services. This many more of our students probably need to use these services. And it became really about getting people who looked credible, because quite frankly, we didn't look credible, but getting people who looked credible to back us up and to say, yes, we were going in the right direction. Yes, this needed to be done. And we wound up meeting with the president of the university who asked point blank, well, why, why would we need to do that? We're taking care of alcoholism, and if we get rid of alcohol use in the university, there'll be no sexual assault. Um, it didn't make sense to me either. Uh, and ultimately, their hard line was it just wasn't important enough. It wasn't important enough to spend money on. We could build a multi-billion dollar uh, sporting complex, but we can't have services primarily used by the student population. So uh, what wound up happening is we had to piecemeal it together. The vision, the original vision clearly wasn't going to happen, but it, it, and it had to change. Uh, that doesn't mean we couldn't get what we wanted. Uh, we thought we needed, to, there used to be a support group on campus, and so we started small and brought the support group back. We found counselors willing to donate their time to come and work with us and literally went door to door in the freshman dorms and put flyers under every single door in every single door in the dorm saying, if you need this, it's here. We're meeting on Wednesday night. Come join us. Every single door. I think it must have been there must have been over a thousand sheets. We ran the copies ourselves and we put them under the door and we got our support group. Um, the school wasn't willing to tell students that there were services available for them, so we put together a resource guide. We called all of the Oakland universities, found out exactly what they had available, and we put together a guide and we went and delivered that to the students because if the school wasn't going to do it, someone needed to do it. Um, we also found that the school wasn't willing to give out condoms anymore, which was a side note. So we called a condom company, got them to sponsor us, and we gave everybody condoms too. And it became more about peer-to-peer -peer relations since the administration wasn't going to help us. And what I found when we were doing this was that the 
people would come and talk to us. And people would come tell us our stories. Oh, my gosh, I'm so glad that you're doing this. Uh, I had an experience last year. My friend had an experience last year, and I didn't know what to do. And, uh, and people were just grateful that it was being done. Um, but what I was wondering is, with, with that many people having experience, that we were the, it seemed to be the only people doing it which highlighted for me that what, we, that what really needs to happen is if you see something wrong, you can do something about it. It might not be exactly what you want to do about it. You might not get exactly what you would hope for, but you can do something to make it happen, even if you have to go door to door and do it yourself. Um, so we wound up getting the, uh, the support group going. We also made a link with the Rape Crisis Center so that students from our university had basically a dedicated staff to work with them because it was the only university that uh, didn't have that on campus. The resources got out, the policy was changed, and the the school website had a very, I'll bet teeny tiny, but a link to a number to call where you could get more help. Um, it, It wasn't perfect, and I wish it could have been better, but it is amazing that in such a short period of time, we were able to leave a mark on the campus. Mm-hmm. And I think it's sort of an interesting poetic piece for the rest, of, the rest of anything that I've really been able to do. If something doesn't quite work for you, if something feels wrong, that you should change it. You should look and see what you can do about it. Um, I also wanted to, on a side note, since I do have my daughter with me, I thought I would segue into uh, a little bit of that just very, very briefly. But uh, she is with me because I've decided that she's being breastfed and that's what we're doing. But I've noticed that there's a lot of, as with the sexual assault, there's a lot of criticism about how people choose to handle the decisions they're making. And rather than being supportive and finding a way to make things work, People are very quick to say, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. You can't do what you're doing. It won't work. Well, she's still breastfed. That is working. We got our rape crisis center. That is working. And I think the bottom line is that you really need to... Really? (laughs) Is that you really need to be... If you listen to people and are supportive of the choices they're making and hear where they're coming from, then I think you can get a lot more done than if you're in an adversarial standpoint and fighting all the time. At any rate, so to the young women out there, if you're passionate about something, if something's important to you, you really, you can do such amazing things. And you may not believe it, and you may feel young, and you may feel inexperienced, but it is so remarkable what you can do if you really care about something. So find something that's important to you. Find something that you care about, and then go find people that will help you make it happen, be it your friends, be it a professor, be it a mentor, be it a colleague, something. But you can, you can do pretty incredible things. So thank you. This is actually a wonderful way to uh, segue into Lauren Porsche, who um, is a reproductive and sexual health activist, educator, and researcher with extensive experience working on access to health care for traditionally marginalized communities. In 2001, uh, when she was... Were you yet a Barnard graduate? I was a senior. 
She was a senior at Barnard. Um, I, I couldn't remember when it actually happened. If it was uh, in 2001, she co-founded the New York Abortion Access Fund, a grassroots nonprofit organization which provides financial assistance to women who cannot afford the cost of their abortion procedures. She's also actively involved with healthcare pr promotion and access to care initiatives for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities. As part of her work, she provides training to clinicians, medical students, and nursing students, health educators, and social service providers in a wide range of sexual, on a wide range of sexual health topics, including gender, sexual orientation, abortion, contraception, sexually transmitted infections, and HIV. She holds a Master's of Public Health in Sexuality and Health from Columbia University. Hello, everyone. Um, so as Laura mentioned, I'm the co-founder of the New York Abortion Access Fund, and Irene, my co-founder, is also on the panel, so she's actually going to be talking about NIAF tonight. Um, what I want to talk about is um, the work I've been getting more involved in recently on access to care for LGBT or lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities. Um, specifically, I'm, I really want to focus on the transgender community tonight. Um, so over the past several years, I've actually come to feel that transgender rights and transgender health issues in particular are among the most important issues I can be advocating for as a feminist, a sexual and reproductive health activist, and a public health practitioner. So why is this? Um, first, on a purely philosophical level, the struggle of trans people, especially trans women, to merely exist in a society that is deeply uncomfortable with the idea that gender roles expression and identity can and do transcend biological boundaries is at its core a feminist endeavor. Further, the right to bodily integrity and self-determination is a shared value among both reproductive rights and transgender rights advocates. From a public health perspective, the pervasive discrimination that trans people face on a societal level, as well as in the healthcare arena, contribute to a, a wide range of health disparities and leave them prey to substandard healthcare. I'd like to start by providing some background on the social and health-specific inequalities that trans people in the U.S. face, and then I'll talk about some of the intersections I see between issues of a concern to the nascent trans health movement and the more established feminist women's health movements. Trans people in the U.S. face rampant discrimination on all levels of society. In 34 states, it's still completely legal to fire someone on the basis of gender identity. And even in states and municipalities where legal protections do exist, employers often simply um, refuse to hire trans people. Housing discrimination is also a serious problem. Trans people may be refused leases or they may face harassment or eviction simply because of their identities. Based on, because of these issues, trans people are disproportionately poor, unemployed, and many find themselves in substandard housing or homeless. A basic public health principle is that socioeconomic disparities lead to health disparities. It's not surprising, then, that research indicates that trans people are disproportionately affected by the HIV epidemic, report higher rates of substance abuse than the general population, and are victim to staggering rates of gender-based violence. If you ask trans people directly, however, what their most pressing health care needs are, They'll office, often focus on access to and quality of care, two issues that I'll be talking about in more depth a bit later. Now I'd like to discuss how some of the history from the women's health movement can provide us with a framework for understanding and advocating for the healthcare needs of the trans community. 
Several of the issues confronted by the feminist women's health movement, such as creating a more compassionate and respectful healthcare experience, challenging hierarchy and paternalism in healthcare, um, all of these issues that um, Laura talked about in the early history of the women's health movement, and also working to break down the model of medical professionals as gatekeepers to care are concerns that are currently being addressed by transgender health advocates. I'd like to focus on what I see as a striking similarity between women's experiences trying to access abortion care in the U.S. prior to Roe versus Wade and trans people's current experiences trying to access hormone therapy for gender transition. As many will recall, in the pre-Roe days, women desperate to obtain abortions resorted to clandestine providers who were often unsafe and unethical. Many of the oral histories from this period document women's negative experiences of exploitation, humiliation, and even abuse at the hands of disreputable back alley providers looking to profit off of women's desperation. Women who wanted to try to obtain an abortion through the legitimate medical establishment had the unenviable option of trying to gain permission from a so-called therapeutic abortion committee at a hospital. In her book, Abortion Wars, Ricky Solinger provides an account of how one such committee worked at a hospital here in New York City. And I'll quote from her work. The director of the Obstetrical and Gynecological Service is chairman of the Permanent Abortion Committee. The other members are chief or senior attending from the departments of medicine, surgery, neuropsychiatry, and pediatrics. No case is considered unless the staff OBGYN desiring to carry out the procedure prevents presents affirmative letters from two consultants in the medical field involved. Five copies of each letter must be filed at least 48 hours in advance of the meeting. The case is then carefully discussed, and if any member of the five on the committee opposes therapeutic interruption of the pregnancy, the procedure is disallowed. Solinger remarks, the fact is many women whose unwanted pregnancies were vetted by abortion boards in the 1950s and 60s say that these experiences were among the worst of their lives. Many could not bring themselves to submit to such a process and went off on their own in search of an abortionist. Other women did, not, did apply to the board, were denied an abortion, but emerged with where their determination undiminished. These women, too, often went to the so-called back alleys. The purpose of these committees was to determine if a woman had a medical or psychological contraindication to pregnancy that would make the abortion permissible. Again, I'll quote from Solinger. To a significant extent, psychiatrists help by providing myriad esoteric ways of selecting who should and who should not be permitted an abortion. Most of these ways were based on providing a clinical answer to the question, is this woman psychologically fit to be a mother? Answers in the negative, which were those that gave permission, women actual permission to have the abortion, at the same time defined the, the petitioner as unfit, unwomanly, and to some degree depraved. The means and the ends here were both degrading to women seeking to control their fertility, end quote. As history has shown us, this model in which medical and mental health professionals serve as gatekeepers in determining who can have access to safe medical care drove determined individuals to seek what they needed outside of the medical establishment, putting themselves in harm's way. In a similar way, I would argue, the substantial barriers that have been created for trans people trying to access hormone therapy have contributed to a public health crisis in the community, where many are forced to get their hormones from the black market and then self-administer the medications without medical monitoring for proper dosing and side effects. Even more concerning, many trans people self-administering hormones are injecting them, oftentimes sharing needles. 
The Silvio Rivera Law Project, a transgender rights advocacy group here in New York City, conducted focus groups with low-income transgender individuals to discuss barriers to health care. In a response to a question about the health risks of self-administered hormones, one participant said, and I quote, the risks, death. You don't know what you're taking if it's not prescribed by the medical doctor. I had a friend who, through taking street hormones that way, well, she had to have her gallbladder removed. You see, when they're selling you hormones, they don't just sell you pills. You, you also have the estrogen that they sell you in the bottle and the syringe needles. A lot of the time, you don't know what you're getting. They could be selling you dirty, unpackaged syringe needles along with the hormone to insert in your body. You expose yourself to the risk of getting hepatitis, HIV, all sorts of other illnesses. This is our lives on the line, and it's really important for people to know that." End quote. So what are some of the barriers um, to accessing gender transition-related hormone therapy? Um, well, first, various iterations of the actual professional standards of care for transgender health are themselves barriers. Um, and they place, they place various levels of hurdles um, in the way, depending on the version of the protocols that you look at. Um, but early versions of what is now called the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH, standard of, standards of care, require that individuals complete a documented real-life experience in their identified gender of three months to one year, depending on the version of the standards that you look at, or a period of psychotherapy of a duration specified by the mental health professional, and that's important, um, after the initial evaluation. Usually the minimum period of psychotherapy would be three months, but it could be longer. Um, these standards are problematic for multiple reasons. Um, first is it's extremely difficult for many trans people to pass fully as a member of their identifi identified gender without the aid of hormone therapy. Um, given the pervasive societal discrimination and violence aimed at openly trans individuals, asking them to go about their daily lives without the assistance of hormones to help them pass as their identified gender can actually be outright dangerous for them. Also, the mental health evaluation and psychotherapy requirement can prove to be insurmountable barriers to many. First, it can be difficult to find a mental health provider who is appropriately trained and experienced in working with trans individuals. Um, also, the cost of extended psychotherapy can be prohibitive, especially when many trans people are poor, uninsured, or their health insurance specifically ex excludes coverage for transition-related care. And this is actually quite common. Most insurance companies exclude any transgender-related medical or mental health care. Finally, the very requirement that a trans person be evaluated by a mental health professional prior to initiating hormones is predicated on the assumption that trans people suffer from gender dysphoria or gender identity dysphoria, dis disorder, um, which is a mental health diagnosis that's extremely controversial within the community. Many find the diagnosis to be unnecessarily pathologizing and a suggestion that being transgender in and of itself is a mental illness. Um, however, within the existing WPATH standards of care, the diagnosis itself is still a requirement for access to hormones. This echoes women's experiences with therapeutic abortion committees pre-Roe, where a stigmatizing mental health diagnosis was often the trade-off for accessing an abortion through the legitimate medical establishments. The requirements for access to hormone therapy in the most recent versions of the standards of care have relaxed a bit in response to feedback from community advocates, but they are still far from ideal. They still require that a psychosocial assessment be conducted by a mental health professional and that this mental health professional provide a referral letter to the medical provider who will prescribe hormones. 
The persistence of the referral letter requirement perpetuates the gatekeeper model wherein mental health professionals determine whether or not an individual will have access to medical care. There's no guarantee that the mental health provider will decide that an individual qualifies for care. The frustrating experience of working with a mental health provider in the hopes of obtaining a referral letter only to have the provider refuse unless additional requirements are met has become so common that members of the community have given a name to it. They call it moving goalposts. Here's how the experience played out for one woman. I came to this psychologist on the verge of self-dosing. He's openly gay and involved with the LGBT community, so I thought surely I had found my guy. I was wrong. He told me six months of therapy before we could even talk hormones. He wanted to plot out every single thing that could ever go wrong. I felt more like, okay, we can keep talking, but I actually want to start. I didn't mind seeing him while on hormones, but I would rather do all that planning once already on them. Before I had started seeing him, I had ordered some do-it-yourself hormones. Eventually, they arrived, and I started taking them. He didn't like this, but still refused to refer me to a doctor and dismissed the improved feelings I felt on hormones as merely a placebo effect. Finally, I found a friendly MD who gave me a legit prescription and then switched psychologists. Ultimately, I felt like I was being taken advantage of by him. He didn't take insurance and charged $135 per session. He required a session every single week. I was paying more for therapy than for rent. He said that six months was the minimum time needed by WPATH standards, but if you actually go and read the damn thing, the standards at the time only called for three months. He was either ignorant of the current standards or straight up lying to me, end quote. Sometimes after someone has successfully navigated the mental health clearance process, they encounter additional negative experiences with the medical provider who's prescribing their hormones. One woman recounted her experiences this way. He requires seeing a therapist at least once a month in order for continued access to hormones, even though I already came with the requisite therapist letter authorizing therapy, hormone therapy. He quite explicitly mentioned that should I stop seeing a therapist, he would cut off hormones. He prescribes one-month prescriptions with no refills in order to enforce this. He takes a condescending and dismissive approach to me asking for higher doses when I told him that the lower dose I'm on is causing hair regrowth, too many spontaneous erections, and other such stuff. Physical examinations with him were terrifying, especially given that I come from a history of physical abuse. I'm generally uncomfortable and squicked out in his presence. The power dynamic is mildly terrifying. He says things like, I can see your breasts are growing, and makes variously vaguely squicky comments about how feminine I must be feeling. The only reason I'm still with him is that I'm unable to find any other doctor who will prescribe hormones in my area, end quote. The stories I've recounted are just a small sampling of trans people's experiences accessing medical care, and they're by far not the worst. Given the hurdles in place and many trans individuals' sad expectation of mistreatment from healthcare providers, it is not difficult to understand why many give up and end up taking matters into their own hands by self-dosing. An alternative to the mental health gatekeeper model is slowly beginning to be adopted by progressive providers of trans healthcare, and it's based on the principles of harm reduction and informed consent. Informed consent in a medical context means that an individual has been made aware of the risks, benefits, and of alternatives to any medical intervention before initiating treatment. Several community-based clinics in the U.S. are now using an informed consent model for hormone therapy, where obtaining informed consent is the threshold for initiating treatment. Mental health treatment is not a prerequisite for access to care, but it can be provided if the individual requests it. 
We desperately need more providers that can provide trans health care, including hormone therapy, utilizing the informed consent model. This is an urgent need, even here in New York City. The Callenlord Community Health Center, whose mission it is to serve the LGBT community in New York City and also provides care to low-income and uninsured patients, operates under the informed consent model, but I'm told it can take six to nine months to get an appointment to initiate hormone therapy there. Um, we also need to advocate for reform, um, reforming discriminatory insurance policies that explicitly exclude transgender-related health care in both private and public insurances. For some individuals, once they're able to successfully navigate the medical system to obtain a prescription for hormones, the cost of filling that prescription is prohibitive. This is especially prob problematic when you consider that trans people are disproportionately poor and unemployed. The cost of filling estrogen, progestin, and anti-androgen prescriptions, for example, can run several hundred dollars a month. Currently, the New York State Medicaid program does not cover any transgender-related health care. The only states that currently provide these services through their Medicaid programs are California and Minnesota. Um, advocates argue that providing these services would actually be a cost-saving measure because the state would see savings in mental health services, treating suicide attempts, HIV infection, substance abuse, and other health problems that occur when trans people cannot get access to gender-confirming hormone therapy. A proposal to include these services was put forth to the New York State Medicaid Board this fall as part of a broad reanalysis of Medicaid-covered services in New York, but the proposal was killed before it could even be evaluated by the panel of experts who are making the final recommendations as to what would be covered. Most of the organizations advocating for this coverage are small local LGBT organizations, and I would really like to see more traditional women's health organizations working in coalition with local LGBT groups to make this coverage a reality. Reproductive rights organizations, for example, have years of experience now advocating for equity and insurance coverage for contraception, which we're only still now getting close to. Um, but we will really need a broad coalition of allied activist groups working on this issue in order to make this life-saving coverage a uh, reality. Thank you for your attention. I'm going to risk splitting up Lauren and Irene, something that <laughs> I don't like to do, but I, I want to introduce our next speaker, who is Dr. Leonor Tiefer. Um, she, uh, in 1969, she earned a PhD in uh, physiological psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, with a dissertation on hormones and hamster mating behavior. Fifteen years later, she re-specialized in clinical psychology at New York University and Bellevue Hospital. She is currently clinical associate professor of psychiatry at New York University School of Medicine and Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Dr. Tiefer's CV lists over 130 chapters, reviews, and peer-reviewed empirical and theoretical articles in sexology. She has written the online CME courses and written and co-edited four books, including Sex is Not a Natural Act. Um, she lectures widely. Dr. Tiefer has been elected officer of the leading U.S. and international sex research organizations and is currently um, associate consulting or book review editor of 11 sexology and psychology journals. Among many awards are the Distinguished Scientific Achievement Lifetime Award from the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality and the Distinguished Career Award from the Association for Women in Psychology. 
In 2000, Dr. Tiefer initiated the campaign for a new view of women's sexual problems to challenge the medicalization of women's sexual problems. The campaign has produced a manifesto, a book, a teaching manual, many publications and presentations, two special journal issues, four conferences, and many activist events and interventions. Dr. Tiefer and other new viewers testified before the FDA in 2004 and 2010. Dr. Tiefer's work has been covered in the New York Times, the Washington Post, PBS, CBS, ABC, NBC, and around the world. Her work is featured in the 2010 documentary Orgasm, Inc., The Strange Science of Female Pleasure. Uh, Volvonomics is the name of the 2011 activism consisting of a three-part challenge to the new industry of female genital cosmetic surgery. And I'm very, very happy to have Dr. Leonor Tiefer here. I really appreciate this opportunity to uh, just talk a little bit about uh, sexology and women's activism and my campaign and some of the challenges that it raises. And then I wanted to show you a video just for a change of of, uh, technological pace instead of just (laughs) words, words, words. Uh, Because we did something for the first time this year that I actually... Um, think is kind of remarkable and and in the discussion of activism to attempt to, I don't know, develop new strategies uh, is always always the goal. So we tried something and I'd like to show you it. It's nine minutes and then maybe we can have a discussion uh, of it afterwards. So, but by way of introduction, just to say that uh, women's health activism is, uh, we've all said and as Um, Laura especially has said about Barbara Seaman, has a long and noble history, I mean, even before the 20th century, uh, and that it's really important to acknowledge foremothers in this. And uh, I'm pleased whenever there are texts that acknowledge the long history of women's activism on behalf of women's health, that this is not... Health is not something you just trust to the ongoing unrolling of science and expertise. Uh, Health is a political matter, and uh, feminist politics is is at the forefront. Uh, We need to advocate as women's health activists always for understanding health in its full social and political context. It's always complex. It's always situated. That's so clear for sexuality, but it's clear for osteoporosis and podiatry and and you name it as well. Uh, What's going on with sexuality has been particularly interesting and something that I've followed now for 40 plus years. As um, Laura said, I got my dissertation with a, uh, I got my PhD with a dissertation on hormones and hamsters. And the reason for that was that at the time in the 60s, the uh, discourse was around and, you know, sort of went out of favor and now is back in favor again around evolutionary thinking as the framework for understanding uh, sexuality and that by understanding animal behavior, animal patterns of mating, uh, one could shed light on other animals, including human beings. That made sense to me in graduate school. And so there I was uh, as a psychologist, physiological psychologist, watching hamsters mate, writing down the numbers, adding and thinking that I was uh, understanding something that would have implications 
uh, for human beings. So then that's the 60s, right? Along comes the women's movement in the 70s, and I realized that I'd made a terrible mistake and that I had been taken in, hoodwinked, by a rhetoric which really turned out not to be true, uh, that the amount of insight one could gather from hamster mating behavior uh, was extremely limited, I mean, like vanishingly small, uh, <laughs> in terms of what it would uh, uh, illuminate in terms of, of human beings. And so I, uh, there I was by then, you know, teaching at a university with graduate students themselves watching hamsters. This was a problem. Uh, but, you know, you realize you've made a mistake. You've got to do something. So I just stopped and quit and recanted and renounced and made public apologies and went back to school and tried to study something that I did think would be more, more useful. So, but being a sexologist actually turned out to be the thread of the entire career, probably really because by the time I decided to change directions, it was too late, you know, to become a sanitation engineer, which is really what I think would have been the most useful choice in retrospect. So I stayed in, in sexology but got into human sexology. And actually one of the uh, jobs I've had along the way has been director of a gender identity disorders clinic at Montefiore Medical Center. So we have a lot to discuss because I really was sort of part and parcel of an enormous transition in that clinical area. And uh, I would agree with uh, some of what Lauren said, but not all of it. And certainly as a former member of WPATH, when it, before it was WPATH, uh, it was very interesting to struggle with issues of trans before the word trans was invented. So, it, I mean, having a historical position on these things is really, really helpful. Uh, having politics is most helpful, but having history, I think, maybe second most helpful. Anyway, so having set that aside, so back to sexology. So there I am trying to get a job, and it turned out that the only way I could get a job was in a urology department in a medical center, this same place where I was doing this gender identity thing because I wanted to have some friends in psychiatry. I was actually employed in the urology department because urologists had decided in the 80s that they were the most knowledgeable physicians when it came to sexuality. This is a very long story about which I've written a great deal, but the short version is that it's not true. I mean, <laughs> urologists were ex and are extremely knowledgeable physicians and surgeons when it comes to bladder cancer, kidney cancer, um, prostatectomies, things like that. Just because you're knowledgeable about the penis, it does not mean you're knowledgeable about sexuality. That is a feminist insight. This was not available <laughs> to, uh, to the gentleman I was working with. But there I was, so I was, I was doing good work, though. I was f interviewing men who came in with sexual complaints and insisting on seeing their sexual partners, um, trying to get another point of view, trying to be helpful. So this is in the 80s and the 90s, and I'll just, uh, you know, overlook a lot of details. And then what happens, I mean, I'm writing about feminist things, but I'm doing the work, and then what happens is Viagra is approved. On March 27th, 1998, not that 
uh, I need to remind you of that date, uh, a watershed date in the history of human sexuality. Um, Viagra is approved for the treatment of erectile dysfunction in men, and the next day, Jane Brody has a note on the front page of the New York Times saying, and where is the Viagra for women? In essence, her women journalist friends are talking to each other, and they're saying, gee, gee, is there... Maybe there's going to be one for women, too. And I lost it. I, I had been working in this urology department for many years and seeing how the understanding of sexuality was really um, limited. And I thought, oh, my God, the same thing is going to happen to women. All sorts of clinics, they're going to open. All sorts of drugs, they're going to be developed. All sorts of products, they're going to be promoted. And it'll, it'll all be about blood flow to the genitalia, you know, and there'll be endless discussions of blood flow and tests for blood flow and hormones and neurotransmitters and whatever happened to the rest of it. The rest of it will get lost. And I thought, well, I'm the right person to do something about this. I'm a senior person in the field, as Laura endlessly said. I'd been the president of this and that, and I'd read this, written this and that. And I thought, all right, I'll start something. But the way I started it was just the way Helen described that you start something. You just get a bunch of women in a room. You don't have a plan. You don't know what to do. You just know you're upset. Yes. And you say to the other women in the room, all right, anybody have any ideas? What can we do? And that's really how this campaign started. I put out a call in Sojourners, that Boston magazine for women, because there was going to be a super, the very first super-duper medical conference on female sexual dysfunction, I thought, oh, my God, well, there's going to be the diagnosis. I know what happens as soon as you have the diagnosis. Then you have the uh, clinics, and then you have the treatments, and, uh, and there goes the farm. So uh, I decided we would go up to the meeting in Boston, so I put out a note in this Sojourner's thing. I, I said, anybody who wants to come, please come. And a dozen people came, and we sat around a table for an entire day trying to figure out what to do. But, of course, this was... 1999, this wasn't 1949 anymore, and so one of the people who showed up was actually a woman journalist from the Boston Globe. So we're sitting around, what should we do, what should we do? And she's writing, writing, and the next day, the first day of the conference, appears on the first, day of the, on the first page of the Boston Globe, just a very simple headline, Doubts expressed about female sexual dysfunction. And that's all you need for a movement, another position, another space. Doubts expressed. So the history of the campaign is as you see it on this website. There's endless, uh, the manifesto and what we did in 99 and 2000, 2001 and so on. It's been a huge amount of fun. It's been a great learning experience. Okay, so we're, we're combating the drugs and we're going down to the FDA and we're talking about how the marketing is driving this and women's voices are not being heard and blah, blah, blah. It's contentious. It's contentious because of something that Lauren said. I wrote this down here. 
bodily integrity and self-determination. Because there are a lot of women who say to me, what's the matter with you? You don't want to take it? Don't take it. Why are you preventing me from having it? It's my body. I want the drug. So the issue of how you balance the political context and bodily integrity and self-determination is at the heart of my work as well as yours. And I think this is a really interesting uh, point to discuss. But anyway, let's pass on fast through that. So there are these drugs. There are still these drugs. Endless amounts of money can be made from these drugs. Companies are not giving up on these drugs, even though they can't get any of them approved because the, um, the science is simply inadequate. That science doesn't show that these drugs help women. And the FDA is full of really smart scientists. I cannot praise them enough in many ways. As a, as a feminist activist, I was skeptical. Who's in FDA, you know, who are they? They're great. Just, just uh, let, let them uh, do their thing. It's the, the top that's the political layer is a problem, but the scientists are, are super. Anyway, so year after year after year, all right, comes along 2008, and I'm getting tired of this drug thing sexual psychopharmacology, sexual pharmacology. I can see it's going to be one drug after another. The arguments are not going to change. First there was a blood flow drug, then there was a hormone drug, now there's a central nervous system drug. doesn't matter. The arguments are the same. The science is inadequate. There are going to be more. I thought there's got to be more to this medicalization of sex campaign than this. And there was an article in the New York Times about a gynecologist who is opening a vulva clinic on the Upper East Side. And I thought, what is this? And it turned out that it was uh, going to offer um, female cosmetic genital surgery, a phrase I'd never heard of before. And I started looking into it. Well, it turns out there's a fascinating story uh, about this. It's all about, you know, the body and the colonizing the body and feeling inadequate about the body. And you got to show more and more and feel worse and worse. It's inevitable. I wrote a paper called Female Cosmetic Genital Surgery, Freakish or Inevitable? And I thought, inevitable. It's inevitable. Um, but I look more, and so we decided, we being the New View campaign, just a bunch of, usually of graduate students at different uh, schools in New York come over to my apartment and try to figure out what to do next. We decided we'd have a street demonstration. That was a lot of fun in 2008. 2009, we had a two-day thing in a gallery in Williamsburg. Now, I live in Stuyvesant Town but I was told that Williamsburg was the happening place. So we got a gallery in Williamsburg, and we had, instead of just criticizing, we decided we'd have a positive thing in 2009. So we had vulvas all over. We had pictures. We had videos. We had velvet ones. We had puppets. We had edible ones. We had every single possible kind of vulva, every shape, every size, every color, every age. It was fun. It was enormous fun. It was very positive. That was 2009. 2010, we decided we'd confront the enemy. So we went to Las Vegas, 
what was happening in Las Vegas. It was the second international congress of cosmetogynecologists, the new subspecialty of gynecologists who decided, you know, uh, cosmetic surgery is much more fun, you know, than uh, traditional gynecology. So they were having their meeting at the Venetian downtown. So we had our meeting on the campus of the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, sponsored by the Women's Studies Department. Never knew them before. I wrote an email. I said, you know, feminists arise, and they said, come on over. So we organized a conference. That was really very interesting. So that was 2011, 2010. So that brings me to 2011. So again, we're trying to think, what can we do? You know, we've been done the protest. We've done the... Uh, the the uh, velvet vulvas. <laughs> we've t- we've done the conference. What's left? What we decided to do, and this is what I want to show you, is we made a video, a spoof training video for doctors who want to get into cosmetogynecology. <laughs> so. I don't know, you know, marching on the street, you know, velvet vulvas. Who knows what makes a difference? But uh, this is this is what we're up to this year, at any rate. Thanks very much. <laughs> Irene Sentadakis grew up in Long Island and has lived in Astoria, Queens, since 2001. She received a BA in American History and Women's Studies from Barnard College uh, and a Master's in Public Administration from Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs in 2007. Her professional experience includes tenures with organizations ranging in size from grassroots groups to national foundations, including serving as a founding member of the New York, Abor- uh, sorry, the New York Abortion Access Fund's Board of Directors, volunteering with the Haven Coalition between 2001 and 2005, and fundraising for community-based social justice agencies. Her expertise includes nonprofit fundraising and management, criminal justice system reform, and reproductive rights, health, and justice. Currently, she works to raise resources for the Ms. Foundation for Women, the oldest women's fund in the United States, where she is the manager of major gifts. So before I I actually get started, I just want to say thank you very quickly to Seven Stories Press and the Barnard Center for Research on Women for um, convening this panel this evening. Um, And a thank you uh, to Laura for inviting me to contribute to her anthology. And um, a thank you to Lauren, who originally invited me to participate in the New York Abortion Access Fund, um, which is what I'm going to speak about this evening. Um, You know, I'm I'm forever grateful that... um, I'm forever grateful to her because without her vision, I I wouldn't be here speaking with you this evening. Um, So as Laura said, I am going to go ahead and speak about about NIAF. I'm going to speak a little bit about its history and how it's grown over the past decade. Um, But before I go there, I want to establish a little bit of context. Um, I want to give this really broad overview of abortion policy in the U.S., Uh, which will explain why abortion funds are necessary. Um, But, of course, the first step, so that we're all on the same page, um, I want to explain what it is that an abortion fund is, in case we're not all familiar with that expression. Um, Abortion funds are quite literally groups of people or organizations that help women access pregnancy terminations. 
Um, sometimes they provide subsidies for the procedure itself, um, and sometimes they also, or instead of, provide practical support, including um, rides to and from clinics, including places to stay before and after the procedure. Um, there are over 90 abortion funds in, in each of 38 states, uh, as well as Washington, D.C., Mexico City, Ontario, and London. Um, many of these organizations are uh, grassroots groups run by volunteers or uh, volunteers in conjunction with this teeny tiny number of staff. Um, although there are, of course, some abortion funds that are established um, that are working out of larger, more established women's organizations, including Planned Parenthood. Um, and I think it's just kind of interesting to note that while many abortion funds are um, very secular organizations, sometimes, you know, very aggressively secular, um, it's also the case that some funds were founded out of synagogues and churches. Um, basically, this is, this is a need that exists in all, you know, in in communities across the country. And, um, you know, there are a lot of folks out there that when they see this need, really try and go ahead and address it in the most practical way possible. So I'd like to segue into an explanation of why it is that our abortion funds are so important and what it is about public policy in the U.S. that makes them so necessary. Um, this is, this can be quite complicated, though, and a little bit wonky. So, I want to start by telling the client story that I use in the piece, um, which highlights some really key pieces of information. So I'm going to talk to you about Karen. Um, obviously, this isn't her real name. Um, but Karen was a client of NIAF's back when I was a member of the board. Um, she was, a, or is, a young woman from rural Pennsylvania. Uh, she was living on a fixed income when she called us. She found out that she was pregnant. She wanted to terminate her pregnancy, um, and when that happened, the nearest clinic to her home was four hours away, and the procedure cost about $500. So Karen had to save to put together that $500. Um, and while that happened, her pregnancy entered the latter portion of its second trimester. When that happened, the price rose to $2,000. In addition to learning that she needed to save all of this additional money, Karen learned that she could no longer get um, she could no longer get an abortion in the state of Pennsylvania. She was now beyond the twenty week point, um, and at that point, abortions are illegal in Pennsylvania. So she decided she needed to come to New York, where abortion is legal through the twenty fourth week of pregnancy. So she spends seven hours on a bus. And this is, this is the time before megabus, so buses weren't so cheap and weren't so comfortable. Um, she was on a bus for seven hours when she arrived at a clinic in New York City. She spent a day in the waiting room and was frankly sent back home. Um, she hadn't put together the remaining money that she needed. The clinic's social worker wasn't able to raise the funds. Um, and the clinic wasn't able to discount the procedure by, you know, $1,500, which is a significant chunk of money. Um, a week later, she got on the bus again and spent another seven hours coming back to New York. Um, and it really was her last chance, because by this point, she had reached uh, about the 24th week of her pregnancy. And if she didn't get the procedure in the next few days, it would be in, illegal in New York as well. Um, 
So the clinic social worker spends a couple of hours on the phone and eventually is able to raise the money because um, the New York Abortion Access Fund, um, we did a special campaign and raised $500 specifically earmarked for her procedure. So that $500 um, combined with the other money that the social worker had raised from other funds combined with what Karen was able to contribute ultimately did secure her procedure. Um, so Karen's story brings three primary issues to the fore that I want to talk about. Um, the first is that there are many women who are too poor to afford, um, to afford their abortions. Some are um, too poor to be able to afford any, you know, to afford any sort of unexpected medical procedure, but they're not poor enough to be eligible for public assistance. Um, and then there are women who are Medicaid eligible. Um, but because Medicaid, uh, Medicaid coverage of abortion procedures is so inconsistent, um, they're not able to access that coverage. They're not able to access Medicaid for, their, for these procedures. Um, the second uh, relevant issue is that cost changes, the cost of an abortion changes over the course of a pregnancy. Um, and that's pretty straightforwardly because as a pregnancy progresses, um, the procedure does become a little bit more complicated. Um, it's, it's a fairly safe procedure in its first trimester, but um, the farther into the pregnancy that uh, termination is performed, it becomes uh, slightly more risky. It becomes a more time-consuming procedure, and as a result, it's available in uh, fewer clinics, and the combination of those three things serves to drive the, the cost up by a significant amount. Um, the third relevant point is that abortion laws across the country are highly variable. Um, the phrase abortion is legal literally means very different things in different places. Um, we see that Karen's abortion is illegal in Pennsylvania after 20 weeks, but in New York um, she can access the procedure through 24 weeks, um, and there are some states that, that will perform terminations as late as 26. Um, so I want to go ahead and sort of pull these things apart. Um, women face significant financial challenges when trying to access uh, their pregnancy terminations. Uh, we probably, most of us in this room probably do recognize that there is a growing number of working poor in the U.S. Um, so these are folks, we, you know, we go to work every day, um, but don't necessarily qualify for public assistance, but that doesn't mean they have enough cash sitting in the bank to be able to afford an unexpected medical procedure. You know, and this obviously applies to abortions, but it applies really to any unexpected medical procedure and really unex any unexpected life-disruptive, life-disrupting kind of event. Um, you know, and as the Great Depression, uh, the Great Recession, rather, uh, kind of grinds on, <laughs> it's a little slip there, um, but as this kind of grinds on and we're not seeing the kinds of recovery that, that um, we're told we're supposed to be seeing, uh, the number of working poor in this country is only growing. Um, what we might not all realize is that many women who are eligible for Medicaid also struggle to pay for their abortion procedures. Uh, the reason for this is the Hyde Amendment. Um, yes, yeah, very, it's very hiss-worthy. Um, it was passed for the first time by Congress in 1976, and it has been passed every year thereafter. Um, the Hyde Amendment is an amendment to a federal appropriations bill, 
and it effectively bars the use of federal Medicaid dollars for abortion services. So what the Hyde Amendment says is that if a woman's pregnancy threatens her life, if carrying her pregnancy to term will actually physically kill her, or if the pregnancy stems from rape or incest, then the federal, then federal Medicaid does have to cover it. Um, if a woman's experience doesn't meet those specific, rather narrow pieces of criteria, then federal funding is prohibited. Um, it is important to note that Hyde only regulates federal Medicaid dollars. State-run Medicaid programs are a very different story. Um, and this is, this is when the story begins to feel like this kind of confusing, overwhelming patchwork. Um, 17 states in the U.S. go above and beyond the federal standard and do fund all or, more, uh, all or most abortion procedures with their state-run Medicaid programs. But that leaves 32 states that do not, um, and that is actually only 49 states, and that's because there is one state that actually falls below uh, the federal standard. But we're going to leave that state outside for the moment. Um, so there's that. Um, we've already kind of covered the way that the cost of the abortion procedure changes. So the next thing I want to talk about is... Um, the extensive network of laws and regulations that govern access to abortion care. Um, they're really far too numerous for me to list all of them, um, but I'm, you know, if we're all familiar with things like parental consent laws, um, in some cases spousal consent laws, in some cases mandatory uh, waiting periods uh, between the time you visit a clinic and the time you can actually schedule your procedure, um, these laws all combine to make access really difficult for women, depending on where it is they live, because these are all state-based laws. Um, what I want to focus on right now is that weird quirk where abortions are actually legal in some states and illegal in others, um, depending on the time, um, depending on where in a woman's pregnancy she is. Um, and that is because of a Supreme Court case far less well-known than Roe versus Wade. Um, the case if from 1992 is actually called Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. Um, and what people don't quite realize is the way that Casey um, really redefines abortion regulation. Um, what Casey said was that a state could not unduly burden a woman's right to access a pregnancy termination from the moment of conception to the moment of fetal viability. Um, so Casey was this sort of, I don't want to say double-edged sword, um, but it simultaneously did some good things and some bad thing, right? In 1992, Casey did reaffirm that abortion rights were legal. A woman does have a right to access an abortion, but it creates this highly subjective standard, you know, unduly burden a woman's right to access a termination. Like, what exactly does that mean? Um, and what, what the court essentially did was um, create this very broad framework um, that allowed states to determine um, what sorts of regulations that they could impose on abortion access. And that's created a whole slew of problems. Um, and very specifically, by using the phrase fetal viability, 
but not defining what constituted viability, it created a very specific problem. Um, what, what has ended up happening is states have been allowed to determine on their own what viability means. So we have 39 states that prohibit abortion after some point in a pregnancy. Now, 20 of these states, um, 20 of these states say that fetal viability is something that needs to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on a woman's uh, a woman's particular pregnancy, um, whether or not you know she can access the determine. Uh, whether or not she can access the termination based on whether or not her pregnancy, her fetus is viable, and that's something they're going to determine by looking specifically at that pregnancy. But that leaves 14 states um, that have established a hard and fast, um, straightforward definition of viability based on, um, uh, based on the moment of time in a pregnancy, based on, you know, uh, time from last menstrual period. Um, so we've got tw uh, 14 states that decide on their own that women can access a pregnancy termination anywhere from 20 weeks in some states, which is you know very much on the early end. Um, some states go as far as 24 weeks, um, and there are about two states that go beyond that to 26 weeks. And then there are an additional five states that... Um, that determine viability as any point in the third trimester. Um, so here we are. We're at a place where um, women, some women don't qualify for Medicaid, right? So, so they need to save a whole bunch of money to have their abortions. Um, then there are some women who do qualify for Medicaid but still can't use those dollars um, to access their termination, uh, to access their termination. Um, they're trying to figure out this, this sort of complicated system of government laws. Well, at the same time, they're actually saving money for their procedure, um, and they're trying to figure out where, where they're going to be able to get that procedure. And I think it's worth noting that um, if you look even more at the micro level, um, if you look beyond where abortions are legal by states, 87% um, of counties in the U.S., don't have a provider at all, which means there are an awful lot of women out there that are going to have to travel at the very least to the next county to get their procedure. Many of them are going to have to travel, um, in fact, 50 miles or more to access that procedure. So what these women are doing is saving money for a procedure that in the time that they're saving that money is going to go up in cost, meaning now that they have to save even more money. And there's a chance that the waiter, the longer that they wait, um, they're also going to have to add the costs of travel, you know, possibly gas for a long car trip, possibly a bus trip, um, possibly a train trip. Plus, depending on how far away they're going, they're also going to have to add the cost of a place to stay once they get there. And then let's not forget um, the large number of women out there who work at jobs where they're paid hourly, right? Because for those women, they have to save all the dollars that I've already laid out, plus they have to forego the dollars that they would have been earning if they'd been able to work. Um, I, I don't want to seem heavy-handed, 
But I believe really strongly that low-income women, their right to um, their right to an abortion really exists only on paper. We have a two-tiered system of health care in this country. We don't like to talk about it necessarily, and um, all this brouhaha about health care reform kind of boggles my mind. It suggests to me that people really either don't understand how um, unequitable our health care system is, or perhaps they just don't care. I don't know exactly which the problem is, but... If you're poor in this country, um, if you're a low-income woman, your health care rights, I don't want to say they don't exist at all, um, but in terms of because their accessibility is so difficult, they might as well not exist. Um, you know, and that is ultimately why I believe that NIAF and its colleague organizations are so incredibly important. I was originally asked here this evening um, to speak about my experiences founding NIAF. Um, and just for some context, uh, NIAF is a grassroots volunteer-run organization. It has almost no, uh, no overhead at all. Um, and it was, again, founded in 2001 by the co-author of this piece, Lauren Porsche. Um, I was involved in the initial projects that ultimately grew into NIAF, um, and I was on the original board, and I served um, in total with NIAF for four years. So the inspiration for NIAF came during the winter of 2000 when a group of Students for Choice of Barnard and Columbia, um, a group of us were volunteering at a women's clinic here in the city. We were working as clinic escorts, uh, which means that on Saturday mornings we were uh, schlepping out to this clinic um, out in one of the boroughs, which I'm not going to name. Um, and we were literally greeting women as they approached the clinic, and we were shielding them from the protesters standing outside. There was one particular morning when we saw a woman and her male partner enter and exit the clinic several times. They made several phone calls. They smoked several cigarettes. Um, and and they, were, they were visibly upset. We struck up conversation with the couple and learned that the woman had come to the clinic um, expecting to have an abortion, but she was turned away. Um, she simply didn't have the money on her own, um, and she uh, wasn't able to, she didn't qualify for Medicaid. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting to note that uh, New, York, New York State has an, um, I, I can't remember at the moment what the official term for this is, but um, you can apply for Medicaid for the purposes of getting a, a procedure and have that procedure covered under Medicaid, even though you're not currently enrolled. It's sort of a, a retroactive. I'm sorry? It's, it's so Medicaid pending. So you need your procedure, you apply for Medicaid, your Medicaid application is pending, you get the procedure, and then you can have the procedure covered. Um, so essentially this woman, uh, I guess, was hoping that she would be able to qualify for Medicaid and get it and sort of apply on the spot. Um, she realized that she wasn't. She was turned away from the clinic. Um, and we were appalled. Like we, you know, as Helen said, you know, we were... 18, 19, 20, and, you know, rather naive. Um, for us, um, abortion rights was, you know, save Roe v. Wade, uh, distribute EC. You know, we, we did all sorts of activist uh, projects on campus, never realizing that 
without fully understanding that you can have a right to something, but that in the real world doesn't translate with being able to have it. Um, so, you know, we were activists, we were very ambitious, we decided to make our next project a fundraiser, um, and our plan was to hold a fundraiser on campus and give the proceeds to an established clinic. Um, and I remember very clearly our first fundraiser was a party at, I believe, Altschul Atrium. Um, we just thought we were the coolest thing. We charged our friends something like five or ten dollars, um, you know, and we we I were did the posters. yeah, Lauren <laughs> did the posters. We had these great little blue T-shirts. I mean, it was really we just thought we were the best thing ever, um, and we took that money, deposited it into our. Um, you know, Student Activities Council bank account, and our plan was to kind of haul ourselves over to a Planned Parenthood and, you know, essentially act as a conduit and, and give Planned Parenthood this money because clearly they had the expertise and judgment to do this, and clearly we didn't, so this was our plan. Um, this was back in uh, 2000, and that spring, I don't know if anybody else remembers this event, but um, the Feminist Majority Foundation held a giant conference in Baltimore called the Feminist Expo 2000. Um, they actually do this event yearly, um, but you know it was 2000, so this was an especially big event, and we were all very excited. And you know we were 21st century feminists, so we we got in a car and went down to Baltimore um, and. Lauren met a representative of the National Network of Abortion Funds, um, and we discovered that there was an entire network out there of organizations doing exactly what it is that we wanted to do. Um, and NNAF actually produced a manual called, not at all subtly, How to Start Your Own Abortion Fund. Um, and it was literally a three-ring binder um, that had all the information and guidelines that you might need for actually creating, it was, you know, a, basically a, a kit, how to have your own abortion fund. Um, and we took the kit home. Um, you know, and as I said, we're, we were ambitious young, young college activists, so we decided that we really wanted to make a, a bigger impact in New York City than just this one fundraiser, which probably raised a couple of hundred dollars max. Um, and, you know, and sort of voila, right? There, there we were. Um, Lauren began the process of incorporating, uh, incorporating a 501c3 organization, I mean, literally out of her dorm room. Um, she recruited a board, um, and we began actively raising funds. Um, I believe that after our Alshul Atrium fundraiser, we, we kind of expanded, and we had a fundraiser at CBGB's gallery, which was you know, on the Lower East Side, and we really thought we were, we were, thought we were the bomb at this point, um, you know, having this party at CBGB's. Um, and over the course of the next several years, the work that we did ultimately established an infrastructure that allowed operations to continue well after all of the founding board members had left the organization. Um, last week, as I believe Laura may have mentioned, NIAF celebrated 10 full years of being operational. Um, they had a giant anniversary gala held at Housing Works. Um, they honored the nation columnist, Katha Pollitt. They also, um, they also honored city council speaker, Christine Quinn, which I think is a testament to, um, it's a testament to the amount of legitimacy and traction that this organization has m managed to build for itself, that they actually got 
you know, a presumptive mayoral candidate to show up and speak. I mean, that was, it was incredible. Um, to give you a sense of how this organization has grown, I'll share a couple quick numbers. Um, in 2002, NIAF pledged $5,000 to help 30 women access safe abortion care. Uh, last year, NIAF pledged over $60,000 to help 246 women access safe abortion care. In its 10-year history, NIAF provided subsidies to over 700 women. Um, and when you think about 700 women over uh, 10 years versus the one woman that inspired this project and the maybe one or two women we could have helped um, you know, while we were still here at Barnard with our couple hundred dollars, I mean, that there is something there that, that is incredibly powerful um, in what it says about um, grassroots activism and um, the ability of committed individuals to sit down, recognize a problem, and imagine a solution. Um, I do want to kind of wrap up at this point. Um, you know, on a personal note, I'll say that um, one of the things that I'm most proud of um, in terms of my work with NIAF is that we were able to um, we were able to address individual women's urgent needs in a way that was not at all judgmental. A woman calls us, they have a problem, we're able to fix it. Um, and you know, in my career since then, everything else I've done has been far more, you know, divorced. I've been in large, larger institutions, and I've been far more divorced from the people that, that I aspire to serve. Um, but on a more political note, and to sort of tie back into the theme of this evening's panel, um, I'm also incredibly proud to have been part of this organization because NIAF now and many other abortion funds um, consider themselves to be part of the movement for reproductive justice. Um, and I use that language very carefully. It's very different um, from um, a reproductive justice movement that is focused on the language and framework of reproductive choice. Um, the basic idea, and this is a far more nuanced conversation um, that you know could go on for quite a while, but the basic idea here is that um, a growing number of women, especially women um, working in communities of color, in low-income communities, um, in immigrant communities, really feel like the idea of, of choice is very suspect for individuals who experience um, social marginalization based on their class status, based on their racial status, uh, based on their immigration status. Um, Ultimately, you're not making a true choice if the kind of constraints that you face in your daily life, um, if those constraints dictate your decision-making, then your decision isn't in its truest sense a real choice. Um, and I think that is something that um, the women's health movement, that um, uh, the feminist movement, in, in a larger sense, um, and hopefully that, you know, this will kind of become a larger part of political conversation in general, um, 
this is something that we're starting to discuss. Um, and it's, it's relatively new in the larger history of the movement. And I'm incredibly proud that that is something that I was able, that was a conversation I was able to be part of. Um, and I think I'm going to leave it there and just say thank you very much for all of your attention. Thank you.